in all seriousness. Let's get into what we're doing today. Uh, this is a pretty straightforward week. Um, not a whole lot of new material here. We talked about John's tendency to repeat himself and to recirculate ideas. Um, and this is really a closing section uh, passage of one section of the book and transitioning to another passage. So we're not going to dig into a whole bunch of new stuff today. There's one new element that John introduces for the first time. But besides that, it's a lot of John recapping what he's been talking about, maybe slightly different angles on some things that we'll look at. Um, so we're going to move through these pretty simply and straightforward. And, and it's not going to, I don't think we're going to do a whole lot of heavy lifting today, uh, but we'll see when we get to the end. Um, let's go ahead and give me one second here. We're going to go to... First John chapter three, we're going to be in verses 23 and 24. Sorry, let me get my Bible already. Technology is great, but sometimes I get over-reliant on it. Um, sorry. Here we go. You ready? Now, this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. That was from the CSB. Um, I think the ESV translation as well in this too. I just happen to be having that one. Um, so like I said, what we're doing here is John's summarizing what he's been saying and setting up what he will be saying. So we're going to cover three things that John does in this passage, which is clarifying and distilling those tests of assurance that we talked about. Um, after that, he's going to re-emphasize that reciprocal nature of abiding, us abiding in God and God abiding in us. And then he's going to introduce the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the three things that we're going to do today. Um, y'all remember we talked about this three-legged stool of assurance. Who can tell me one of those three legs? Anybody? Three-legged stool. They're in your notes. What? Obedience. Belief. Tedward? No? Love for others, okay? Um, so what if I told you this isn't a three-legged stool anymore? Okay? Because <laughs> John's going to shift the way we think about this a little bit. We weren't lying to you, but what John is going to do is say, like, this is really like, you ever see those stools where it's like a single stool that, like, splays out at the bottom like a leg and then a little, like, kind of tripod at the bottom? That's kind of more like what we're picturing here because John takes this commands and distills it down to one command, really. I have one command for you. Um, the, so we, we've talked about obedience, belief in the person and work of Christ and love for others. But what he does is says, this is the command that you've been given. So we go from three commands down to one, really. Uh, or taking that command, that obedience part, and we're pulling the other two into it. It's probably a better way of thinking about it. The command itself is that you believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and that you love others. So I, wanna, I want us to dig into those things. But before I do that, let's remember what we're talking about here. We are talking about assurance of the faith, not accomplishment of salvation assurance, not accomplishment, because these are different things. Um, remember, salvation is the work of God independent of ourselves. 
we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God reaches into the grave and saves us and breathes life into us and empowers us to keep his commands. That work is independent of us. It's a good thing because dead people can't do anything. So while we talk about these commands, it's really important for you to mentally keep in mind that I'm not talking about what God expects of me so that he will save me, but what God expects to see as a result of having saved me. This is a big difference here. Okay, guys. Um, Remember, even the belief, because we're going to talk about belief and loving, even that belief, the faith in his son, Jesus Christ, is a gift from God. That's Ephesians 2.8, right? Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And by the way, verse 10 talks about all the works that we're going to do as a result of that. So remember the order. Dead people, the love intervening from God to raise us from the dead, giving us faith so that we believe in him, and then setting us on a course to do his works that he is predestined beforehand. So he said, before any of this, he said, I'm going to save this dead person and I've got plans for them. So all of that is predestined. We like to talk about predestination because we're good Calvinists. And we like to think about predestination sometimes just in this area of, oh, God predetermined who he's going to save. But God also predetermined what he was going to do with those people once he saved them and what he was going to accomplish in the world to proclaim his glory Before he even saved you, he had plans for you, okay? So John's argument here is that Christians may have assurance if we obey God. And to obey God is to believe in Jesus Christ and love others. This is the proof that God has done something. There is a difference between the accomplishment of something and the proof um, how does the sun burn? There's all kinds of like massive nuclear reactions going on. It's a giant ball of flaming gas. How do I know the sun burns? Well, I see it. I feel it. Um, that tactile experience for me is how I know what's being done independent of me. Uh, in the same way, like my wife will bake muffins often. Uh, I mentioned muffins earlier. I guess I just got muffins on the brain. Um, my wife baked muffins. How she bakes a muffin is different from how I know that she did it. I know she did it because there's, there's the fruit of her labor there. There's muffins there. Um, how she did it, I still don't know. That's why I only make biscuits. Um, that's mysteries. Um, so let's break down these two elements of this command from God, this singular command that is multifaceted. Uh, the first one is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to break this down a little bit word by word. Um, What is in a name? This is one of those deals where we can tend to read over a verse really quickly and miss the importance of the specific words chosen by the Holy Spirit through the author. Um, Names are really important. We haven't gotten, we've kind of gotten away from this to a certain degree, I think, in our culture. But in some cultures, and especially in the time and the place of, of John, um, and really all of scripture, names matter. You, you see that constantly as a pattern through scripture where your name carries a tremendous amount of significance about your identity, your character, your traits, your personality. Um, 
you see this almost like it's almost like an element of blessing that parents will put on someone and say, this is who you are. Um, it's not just, hey, this is a pretty name. Uh, I like the way this sounds. Let's spell it with an extra Y in it because that's what people do these days or whatever. Um, names matter, and even more so when we talk about God because God is obviously infinite and not able to be contained in our language. But sometimes you'll see writers often using a specific word to refer to God that highlights an aspect of his character, of of his identity. This is, I'm experiencing God as a provider or as a healer or as the sovereign Lord or as um, the justifier. And you see names placed around God in a way that, that highlight who he is. And so to just say you believe in the name, what we really mean is that you believe in the person. That name is synonymous with the person that, of the, that bears that name. And when I say person, who? Well, of his son, Jesus Christ. And this right here, guys, have you guys ever heard the, uh, the old, I think it's attributed to, I want to say Ernest Hemingway, although that might be fallacious, of... Um, the shortest story ever written, which is like the six. Have y'all heard of the six word story for sale? Baby shoes never worn. Have y'all heard this before? It's the shortest story somebody could ever write. It's for sale, baby shoes never worn. It's a sad story, right? But um, the idea is how much meaning and import can you pack into a small collection of words? And what John does here with these words, his son, Jesus Christ, is uh, this is dense. This is like a whole credo in four words. Uh, so I want to highlight what each of these words bears with it in weight. Um, thanks, by the way, to Abby Lemoyne for making my, my, uh, my graphics happen in these notes. I got fancy and put graphics in, and she emailed me and said, do you have a copy of this in a different format? And then she said, never mind, I figured it out. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. I didn't want you to have to redo all my pictures. And she said, no, I had to. And I was like, oh, I feel bad. So I got to work out how to help her help me better. Uh, but she's great. So anyway, so uh, let's look at these three, these three chunks here. His son. What does it mean that, that we are talking about God's son? So this is the title of the son of God as the divine. Right? So this highlights his divine nature. We're not simply talking about a good man or a great teacher with some good ideas. Um, we're not even talking about somebody who sacrificed himself for us. Those things are all true. But what John is getting at with this idea of Jesus being God's son is his divinity. This is a divine man. And that matters when it comes to his ability to bear our sins, like to handle the weight of God's wrath. He had to be the eternal, infinite God in order to absorb the eternal, infinite wrath. So the fact that we are talking about divinity enfleshed is a big deal. And that is in those two little words, his son. This is the fulfillment. Remember, God made Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, and his plan was to dwell with them. And you see throughout all of the Old Testament, whether it's the garden or the tabernacle or the temple, this dwelling of God in the place of man, this, this uh, Emmanuel theme going throughout, and it is, it is fulfilled completely in Christ. This is God 
dwelling in a man and amongst men. And that's a big idea to put into two words, his son. Jesus. What does Jesus mean? First of all, hey, just think about this. Angel comes to Mary, says, you'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus. I think I can say this accurately. Somebody can correct me if this is heretical. The son of God wasn't known as Jesus in eternity past. Okay. I I don't think so. Um, Someone correct me if I'm wrong and I'm happy to recant that. I think he's still known as Jesus because he was born and named Jesus. But Jesus was the earthly name given to the son of God. Todd's nodding. So Either you guys are in really bad shape and we're both heretics and I'm so we'll, we'll both be fired and Peter will find somebody else. But I think Jesus is, is the son of God's earthly name. And it's not just any name. We talked about names. This is Yeshua. This is the God who saves. So in this one word, Jesus, we are getting, this is man incarnate. This is, this is, this is a human being with an earthly mother and father who give him an earthly name. And that name carries what he is going to do for mankind, which is to save them from their sins. That's a big name. The fact that he has a name is one thing, that he's not just the father or the Holy Spirit or the son, that he is Jesus, the human being, is a big deal. And the fact that his name above that means that he's going to save his people from their sin tells you a whole lot. So we're building our creed here. We have God come in the flesh as a human being born on earth with a name and a destiny to save mankind. Christ. This is not Joe and Mary Christ's kid. Okay. This is not his last name. Jesus, the Christ. Christ is your, your Greek, your Hellenization of Messiah. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. Remember, anointings happen in the Old Testament um, and in the New Testament. You anoint someone for a mission to go on. Anointing is for a specific purpose. So Jesus, the Christ, is anointed as the Messiah, the promised one for the redemption of people because Moreover, than just coming in and, and as a single person embodying God amongst men, Christ's mission is to bring men to God for full indwelling and communion with him. If you put that all together, what this word, these words, his son, Jesus Christ, tell you is God enfleshed in human clothes, as an earthly man on a mission to save people from their sins and fulfill an anointing to reconcile man to God. That is the gospel. And that's the gospel that John packs into four little words here. Okay. Big deal stuff. Uh, In his commentary on this, Danny Aiken says, John uses a dative, that's just a relationship term, of personal relationship, which involves a personal commitment to oneself to the name of Jesus Christ. It is a personal identification with all that the bearer of the name entails. 
To believe in the name of Jesus Christ is to place one's faith, one's trust in him and all that he is, the divine son, the incarnate deity, the sinless human, the messianic savior, and all other facets of his unique nature and personhood. Belief is acceptance of the entirety of him. That's why this is the first of the big commands that John is highlighting here is because it is a, it is a profession of belief in who God is and submission to his rule. Secondly, and to love one another just as he commanded us. For the Christian to love another is not an, sorry, is an embodiment of faith in Jesus, an evidence of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. We see Christ's commands frequently. In John, this is my command that you love one another. We see that over and over again in that farewell discourse that we've been talking about. The reality is this has always been God's command to believe in him and to love others. Um, But only once we are in him can we actually obey this. And really, any sin violates both of these commands. This is the love God, love neighbor. Have faith in God and love neighbor Any sin that I commit is functional atheism and narcissism. When I sin, I say there is not a God who can rule me and tell me what I can do. I am the master of my domain. I will decide what I will do. It is functional atheism and it is functional narcissism. There is not a single sin that is not against someone else. David says against you and you alone have I sinned because of the magnitude of God and his greatness that dwarfs in some ways our sin against neighbor. But there is not a victimless crime, guys. You don't, I, I mean, I've racked my brain. I was thinking, I cannot think of a sin that I can commit that doesn't have collateral damage, either immediately or in the future. So when I, when I sin, I work to hate others and to place myself as important above them. When I obey God, I submit myself to his rule. That's the first part. And I submit myself in love to others. I exercise self-control in growth and righteousness so that I can love others tangibly and tactably. Um, In a lot of ways, you guys have heard me say this a lot, love of neighbor is, is the fruit of the spirit. It is, it is what I walk in um, as I obey God, it's going to be felt by you guys. I can't obey God and not have it be felt by the people around me. Uh, that is, we don't practice some monastic faith where I just do the right thing in my little corner. no. Because our, our, we, we don't even need bodies to do that, if you think about it. Like, I need to be around people, and my obedience will, will magnify God's name amongst them and communicate care for them. Um, so this is the dual nature of the command of God. Obey, believe in me and obey me by loving others. Are we clear on those things? So John goes from this to reemphasizing the reciprocal nature of him. By this we know um, that, that he abides in God and God in him. 
and that we abide in God and God in us. Um, we've talked about mutual abiding a lot. I'm not going to go into it a ton here today. Um, I'll briefly cover it, though, because it is in the text, and I don't want to just gloss over it. Um, what we mean by mutual abiding is that I abide in God and God abides in me. Uh, I use the illustration of the Russian nesting dolls, right? So if I'm like the medium-sized Russian nesting doll, there is God inside of me. God abides in me and I abide in God. Um, God abiding in me gives me empowerment to walk in his ways. My abiding in God gives me assurance that I'm covered in the blood of his son. Um, our mutual abiding relationship with God is both the root and the fruit of our obeying his commands. We talked about this faith and love. The means of obeying God's twofold command is the enlightening, that's the belief side, and the empowering, that's the love and obedience side, um, work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot obey God in this command that he's given us without abiding in him and him abiding in us. Um, this is, remember, we've been talking about how John is, is expounding on the farewell discourse, John, chapters 13 through 16, um, for this whole chapter, pretty much. Um, in John 14, uh, 15, 4 through 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the empowerment. That's the sap flowing through Jesus to us for life. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. That's your mutuality there. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot grow in obedience without the indwelling of Jesus. Um, at the same time, I want to add a little wrinkle here. While these things are mutually reciprocal, their relationship is not automatic. I was having this talk with my kiddos uh, just last night. Um, when God saves us, he comes to abide in us. He dwells in us. We'll talk more about what that looks like in a minute. That is the active work of God. But our abiding in God is an active work of us empowered by that work. And it is not something that's automatic. It's why progressive sanctification is progressive. Um, I still am called to work to abide in Christ. In this, in this verse in, in John 15, 4 through 5, abide in me. That's a command. He's calling us to action. It's not something that he just assumes is going to happen. Uh, I have so loved this old commentary that I found on this book by Robert Law. It was written in 1909, and I've quoted it a few times over the last few weeks, and I, I just... I, it's beautifully written, honestly. Um, and I loved his thoughts on this. He says, But this abiding of God in us has as its necessary counterpart our abiding in him. In this reciprocity of action, 
priority and causality being, belong, as always, to God, without whom we can do nothing. Yet, not so that the human activity is a mere automatic product of the divine. We can invite or reject the divine presence, keep within or avoid the sphere of divine influence, open or obstruct the channels through which the divine life may flow into ours. Hence, abiding in God is made a subject of instruction and imperative exhortation. In other words, this is something we are told we need to do and instructed, commanded to do. And when the word abide is thus used, the idea of persistence or steadfast purpose, which is inherent in it, comes into view. We don't abide at one point in time. We continue to abide. We work to stay abiding. As the abiding of God in us is the persistent and purposeful action by which the divine nature influences ours, so our abiding in God is the persistent and purposeful submission of ourselves to that action. We don't simply... You know, this is the, the, the misshaping caricature of assurance, the doctrine of, of, the, of assurance or of um, the perseverance of the saints, whatever you want to call it. This idea that you hear it characterized as once saved, always saved. You'll hear it called that. Of just, oh, you just pray a prayer once and you're good, right? Um, that, is a, that is a grotesque caricature of God's sovereign purpose of salvation. He saves you and calls you to walk in him. And that is the fruit of salvation. And it is a persistent act. It's a persistent duty that we are called to perform, not to save ourselves, but as evidence that God has saved us. Um, that is what it means to abide in God and have him abide in us. But as law says, remember, that obedience or that abiding begins with God. God abides in us and then we abide in him. God's always the starter. Because you got to remember, if you've got a live guy and a dead guy trying to accomplish something, the live guy has to start. So God being alive, being life himself has to begin this process because we are dead and inert without him. And lastly, God introduces the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, guys. I'm running a hair behind, I think, because I got a little fired up there. Um, by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So remember last week we talked about John's by this and then talking forward and by this and by talking forward and by this and talking forward. So this is the one time where he's kind of looking forward and back. So if you think about the, law, the, the, the flow of thought that John uses here, he says, obey the commands. By this you'll know that you abide in him. By this we know that, he'll abide in, that he abides in us. By the Holy Spirit. So this mutual abiding is the connection between our obedience and the Holy Spirit as John is drawing out this line for us. And look, I've got a picture. I'm a visual learner. I've been wanting to do charts like this for a long time. I finally put the work into it this time because uh, it helps my brain process things, especially in John's Christmas lights of ideas that he, he weaves for us. Um, just take a second and look at this, this diagram so you can kind of see. Um, 
we have the mutual reciprocity of our abiding with God. Then we've got the two forms of evidence at the bottom of that pointing to those two things. Our obedience pointing to our abiding in God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit pointing to God abiding in us. Um, and then our obedience is evidence of the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about. And then eventually we'll even get to next chapter. Todd will talk about this. Um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit being evidence of our abiding in God. Uh, there's a lot of arrows there. Some are double-ended. It's kind of crazy. Um, but I want to talk about this circular nature of assurance and abiding here and how the Holy Spirit plays into this. Our abiding in God and God's abiding in us are mutually reciprocal, although not automatic like we talked about. They can't be separated or shouldn't be separated is probably a better way of, of putting it. Um, this is the whoever abides in me and I in him. This is, these things ought to go together. When they don't, it's because we're not actively abiding, but they are built to work together. Obedience to God, and we talked about in this passage, that's belief in the Son and love of others, is outward evidence of our abiding in God. And, and John 15, Jesus talks about this in that same passage. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We have evidence of our abiding in God as we see growth in godliness. As we abide in him, we take on his character. We slowly grow in conformity to the image of Christ. Um, right here at the very end of our passage, number three, the indwelling of the spirit is inward evidence of God's abiding in us. That's the, by this you know that we abide in him by the spirit he's given us. Uh, you see that also in, in Romans eight sixteen. Uh, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's this kind of supernatural communication that happens in our spirit as God's Holy Spirit in us communicates an assurance of salvation. Um, Paul talks about it right into the Corinthians in Second uh, Corinthians 1. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is language of like a down payment or collateral kind of idea where God has put his spirit in you. And this is beyond like this nebulous idea of abiding, but like the spirit of God is dwelling in you uh, as a means of like, I, I'm going to put this here. It's like, you know, when you like, uh, you, you leave like, your keys somebody or your, your license someplace as like a collateral, like I'm going to be back. Like this, God gives us his, his Holy Spirit. It's like, I'm going to be back, you know, uh, not that he abandons us, but the, the idea is that he, it's a promise that he is going to redeem us to him. Um, there is an inward assurance that happens with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been following along with the course of this book, that raises a little bit of a wrinkle, um, a situation, if you will. Because John is right into this situation where the, these false teachers have left the church. They're preaching a different gospel and they're calling people from this church to him. And if I can just assert that God's Holy Spirit dwells in me and therefore I have assurance that I'm a genuine believer. Then why can't these false teachers do it? They certainly can. There's no 
there's no external proof here. It's like an, an entirely closed like black box of communication going on. And that's why it's important for us to pay attention to this connection between our obedience as proof of the indwelling of the spirit. Um, you know, that's John's answer to this argument and we'll get to it in the next chapter. Uh, so I'm just kind of setting up just like John is setting up here. Um, there is evidence of God's obedient of God's, uh, indwelling Holy spirit in us found in our faith and in our love. Um, that's the fourth point here. Obedience to God is evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By the way, I have the wrong verse here. That should be Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but you all know the, the verse anyway. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me, then those things should be evident in my life. I should be growing in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in self-control, um, in all of these things. If God's Holy Spirit truly dwells in me, these things are going to be produced. Um, you see in, in 1 Corinthians, a couple of passages where Paul talks about our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is that idea of, God doesn't just dwell in a building anymore. He dwells in and among his people. Um, and you're this temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin against a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The idea is, here is, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that's going to be reflected and should be reflected in your growth in disciplining your body towards obedience. And this is, he's giving, uh, immorality is one example here, but you could apply it to any other sin. It's, if God's dwelling in you, then you are going to purport your, comport yourself in a way that communicates the growth and change that grows out of a Holy Spirit who empowers us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if that stuff isn't evident, then it is cause to ask, is the Holy Spirit there? And so as these believers that, that John is writing to, and he repeatedly tells us that he's writing to believers, as he talks to them, he's kind of saying, see the growth that's going on in your life and compare it to the godlessness in these people that are claiming to be believers. And the biggest one is going to be who they affirm to actually be Christ, be, who, who they actually affirm Christ to be, uh, borne out later by their lack of love for others. But um, that's the big piece here. So I, it's just a reminder that we can't just assert that, oh, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I just know I am. Like I can tell. Other people should be able to tell too. And if they can't tell, it's time to ask questions. Um, and you see that as John's encouragement, both for the believers about themselves and also about the false teachers. Uh, so from that point, we are going to move next week into chapter four. We're going to discuss how to discern true spirits from false spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, 
goodness and obedience from, uh, from disobedience and faithlessness. So that's what we're going to get next week. Thank you guys for being here. I made it. Sweet. Uh, y'all go enjoy worship. <laughs>